Well, hello everyone. My name is Chris and I'm the Student Ministries Director here at Agora Bible Fellowship. Uh, we are so thankful that you have joined this online service that we have for you. Uh, and just to let you know that our heart is for everyone to be connected to a local body of believers, uh, a local church. And uh, this online service is used just uh, as a supplement if you're out of town, traveling, vacation, or for work, or if you're unable to attend on the weekend. A couple of things I want to remind you of. The first thing is that uh, you can text us your prayer request, your confidential prayer request at 97,097,000. And we love praying for you. Stephanie will respond right away. So you can go ahead and do that. Uh, the other thing is we have a lot going on every single week here at Agoro Bible Fellowship. And if you want any information about our various events, life groups, uh, ways to serve, uh, anything going on throughout the week, our website is the best place to start at agorabible.org and you can go there at any time and uh, you get all the information. Lastly, we are so thankful for your ongoing generosity and support. Uh, we cannot uh, be doing what we do uh, without your support, so we're so thankful for that. On our website, you can go to the Give tab and you can donate there and we just ask that you prayerfully consider uh, donating. Uh, so with that said, uh, let's go ahead and get into God's Word. Thank you. Well, thank you, Chris, and uh, welcome to another online uh, service, a chance to get into God's Word this week. I, I did, just before we, wanted, before we dive in, wanted to give a quick update. I appreciate uh, those of you that have been praying for my wife. Her surgery, uh, knee surgery, went uh, well this week. Uh, she had a torn meniscus, but it was the one where the, the meniscus is actually torn off of the bone, and so they had to reattach it to the femur. They got in there and felt like the surgery went well. They, they did see that her ACL... Uh, was actually ha has a partial tear to it. And so we're just praying. They think that through some rehab that might be able to be built back up. And so we're uh, praying for that. It's the first uh, day after surgery. And so uh, as long as you keep enough uh, drugs in the system, uh, all of a sudden uh, everything seems all right. It's kind of funny. I was just talking to the guys recording here that I, I titled this service comfortably numb. And I think about that with Adrian. And so that's a good summary of how she's doing is uh, she's comfortably uh, numb after uh, surgery. But seriously, uh, thank you for the prayers and support. Well, we're continuing working through 1 Corinthians and we're in chapter uh, four here today. And uh, as I've uh, mentioned through this series is it's basically a letter written from Paul to the Corinthian church. And the Corinthian church is a young church, and it's only been two or three years now since Paul has been there, but they're getting uh, pretty far off track. And so they've succumbed, unfortunately, to kind of the, you'd say the subtle tug of the surrounding culture that's really effectively lulled them into a place of consist of uh, complacency. And um, so just without even realizing it, he's wanting to uh, shake things up, to stir the pot, if you will. I remember a number of uh, years back, I was visiting some friends in Florida and they enjoy a lot of seafood uh, uh, in the particular uh, place where they're located. And they're explaining while we were there that they had some crabs that they were going to uh, cook for us, but they explained the process and how to uh, cook a tender crab was not 
uh, resistant is you wanted to put them in warm water first and then gradually uh, turn up the heat. And the crabs don't even uh, put up any kind of a fuss, any kind of a fight. You say that about boiling a frog as well. You notice that eventually they are then uh, brought to a boiling point before they realize that they're in big trouble. And I think about that with the church so easily the culture in which we're placed, when we don't realize it, when we don't pay attention, the, the current, the tide can be sucking us out to sea and not even realizing what has happened, how you've adopted the culture and you've slipped back into some of the ways of the flesh. And that's exactly what's happening here with the church. The church is allowing what they've allowed to happen is, as I mentioned with this title, they've become comfortably numb, numb to the effects of the culture, numb to the effects of uh, those around them, pulling them back into patterns of sin. And so Paul, as I mentioned, is, is writing them just to, to get their attention, to call them back, because there's so much at stake uh, at really affecting and, and marring the image of Jesus Christ that the church is intended to be to the rest of the world and, and stealing the vibrant lives that he's called us to, the lives of impact and influence. So we're going to look at this section of scripture, which I believe definitely speaks to our situation present day. Let me pray before we do that. Lord Jesus, we thank you for a chance to gather around your word, and that's what we do each week, to hear what you have for us and to see uh, how what you spoke to this group of young believers would be relevant to us today. There's so many parallels and so many overlaps, God. I ask that you'd convict, you'd nudge, you'd challenge us even in this text today. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. All right, so starting in chapter four, it says, this is how... One should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is very sm a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not, not thereby acquitted." It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. Who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart? Then each one will receive his commendations, commendation from God. So we'll stop there and explore a little bit of what's being said. Paul's discussing principles that were true about him that he wanted, as an apostle, that he wanted to be true about his listening audience as well. He starts with some identity talk, some conversations about who they're intended to be. He describes himself as a servant. The word servant can also be translated slave. I was doing a little research on that this week, on what that actually entailed, what that meant. In that day and age, they had different levels of slaves. Some uh, were slaves that were more like just an employee. And then uh, down the rung, it got less and less freedoms and less and less liberties. A word used here for slaves would be the lowest level of slaves. The word used is hooperetes. The title used to the slave at the bottom of a boat chained to oars. 
The life of a galley slave would be a miserable one if you think about it. Their backs would be scarred from the crack of whips. Their life was bound with really difficult, repetitive task of, of rowing a boat, not much glory in the bottom of a ship. And that's the term and title that Paul uses to describe himself. So the pastor's first term of identification here is a galley slave. This is why it's almost laughable for the church to pick favorite galley slaves. First, if you remember in 1 Corinthians 3, 5, Paul says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Again, that term servant is an important one to understand. It's a great reminder for pastors not to get too cocky. The only reason we're useful is because God chooses to use us. It's not a servant, though, you notice, not a servant of the people. It describes right out of the gates, they are to be servants of Christ. That's an important thing to understand as well, who we actually answer to. It's really easy, I must confess, to be pulled the direction of being servants or submitting to the people of the church rather than focused on submitting to Jesus Christ himself. The last couple years, there's been a lot of tug to serve the people and respond to what their preferences much, uh, might be. There was a lot of pressure, I would say, to go the direction of the culture, whether it was to advocate mass or to resist mass, to advocate lockdowns or resist them, to advocate vaccines or to resist them, to advocate Trump or to resist him. All of these things were tugs in our culture that were, pull, that were placed on the, the typical or average pastor. But here, I think what is true is that when I focus solely on serving Christ, I'll best serve his people. Every servant has an assignment, and you notice what our assignment is. It's not to serve people, the people of the church, but to be stewards of the mysteries of God. If you've spent any amount of time on an airplane, you understand kind of what the role of a stewardess is. Basically, what do they do? They're responsible to pass out things, to pass out food, to pass out drinks, to pass out headphones, pillows, whatever, meet the, the needs of the people there. And you think about that title being stewards of the mysteries of God. What are the mysteries of God? The word there is used mysterion, which is something that was once hidden that's now been revealed. The word of God, the gospel message. There is generation after generation that had no idea about what it meant to need to be rescued by Jesus Christ. But thankfully, we're in a day and age where the gospel has been clarified. And now it's my job to bring that meal to the table, making sure that people are well fed. It's not my job or responsibility to add additional flavor to it. I don't have to adjust it or change it. I just have to be, I'm graded on being faithful and bringing the entire word of God to the table. I just try not to mess it up on the way from here to you. 
I don't know if you've ever had a role as a, any kind of a, a host or, or server at a restaurant. You, know, you really, uh, there's so many opportunities to mess things up. I've only at one time in my life been a, a server. I actually worked at a, a banquet hall when I was in college for one of a, a stretch of time. I remember I wasn't really very good at it. One instance in particular stands out in my mind where I was, had the simple responsibility of just filling up people's water. I remember reaching for a, a water cup and I had a pitcher of water in my hand as I was reaching for the cup, not realizing that I was pouring water down this poor woman's back. I hid in the back for a couple hours after that, just had one job to do. You think about that as a pastor, as a minister, what Paul's saying is our, my one job is to make sure I'm a steward of God's word. That's my responsibility. And the parallel is this for the average person in the American church. Our one job is the same. The job of getting the message of Jesus Christ out to the world around us. The hope is that we would be found faithful. Faithful to the gospel is actually faithful to Jesus himself. You can't separate the two. Paul realizes who, you notice it here, who he answers to is God alone. Look what he says. He says, it's very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. This is a, a wonderful place to get to as a, a leader within the church where you're no longer bound or tied to human opinion or what somebody thinks of you. It's so hard to push back against that because in our flesh, we want to hear the that a boy or nice job or great sermon, great point you made. But here Paul's saying, man, there's only one person I have to answer to. It's to God himself in my faithful exposing or bringing the word of God to you. I think he shows even more maturity when he describes, not only do I not care what you think, I don't even care what I think is what Paul says. He says, I'm not even judging myself. I think that's an important thing too, because when we're responsible for judging ourselves, there's a tendency to think of ourselves in too uh, high of regard. We're biased in our own favor. You think about this, this reminder that's, I think, an important principle for all of us to bring ourselves back to is that we, at the end of our days, only answer to God himself. The end of our days, it's not going to be an account that we have to give to our boss. It's not going to be an account that we have to give to a, a spouse or a loved one. We're going to stand before almighty God. As a pastor, I often have people uh, on the pickleball court when we're out playing, if they uh, say a curse word, they'll, they'll even apologize to me. They'll say, oh, I'm so sorry, pastor, for, for my language. So forgive me for that. I, I often explain to people, listen, you do not have to answer to me. At the end of your days, you're not going to stand before me. You'll stand before God to give an account. It's actually a fun little segue into the gospel message. What's going to happen on the day we're told in the text, he'll disclose the purposes of the heart. What we don't know, what we don't see about somebody, I think there's going to be a lot of surprises on that day. People that maybe thought they would be going to heaven that are not, maybe people that we didn't think were going to be uh, invited in will be invited in because what will be exposed is what's actually happening behind the scenes with somebody's heart. He describes for us, he says, those will be given commendations. You see, for the follower of Jesus Christ, there, there's no uh, condemnation. There's no penalty. The, the, the price has been paid for our sins. So we are 
Our choices are determining what level of reward we get in heaven. It describes there as commendations. Scripture, this idea of a bema seat that will stand before one day where crowns will be distributed. We're going to be graded, though, on the motives of our heart. It's important to do regular heart checks for us to check and see how what's, what is the condition of my heart? What level of, uh, of servanthood have I embraced? How am I with my heart towards the lost, towards the poor? Doing heart checks is so critical. A couple years back, I got pulled into doing one of these health checks. I don't know if you've heard of before. It's called Life Scan, Live Scan, where they really go in depth to check the condition of your heart and kind of what's going on in your arteries and all this stuff. And it's kind of interesting because they see what a regular physical doesn't typically see, what a regular uh, doctor's checkup. They look behind the scenes and see what is actually going on. I like thinking of that in terms of one day standing for a perfect judge that sees directly to the heart. That's what he's reminding them of. Continue in the text, recognizing it all comes from him. What does he say in verse six? He says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? All right, we'll stop there for a little explanation. I think you can catch the big idea that he's trying to get across. First, he's reminding them, he says, I've applied all these things to myself. What are all these things? What things? Basically, the idea of what he was just talking about is living as a servant that's faithful to the gospel, to proclaiming it, living as if he's answering only to one person at the end of his days. He's saying, I'm being faithful to that. If you think about how frustrated we get when you have a leader that's in leadership that calls you to do something that they're currently not doing. In other words, rules for thee but not for me. You get that a lot of complaints about that in current government positions where you're like, man, you're charging people to do this, but you're not living by that yourself. Paul is not that guy, but he still wants them to learn from them. And he says something without picking a favorite nor elevating one or another, e either of them. He charges them not to go beyond what is written. I do a little research this week on what it's talking about. Don't go beyond what is written. Basically, what he's saying is don't go beyond elevating somebody in spiritual authority over you. Uh, don't, don't make that into a bigger deal than it's intended to be. I think it's important for us to understand what we're called to. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, and 13, it says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and to admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So that's what's written. That's what's told to us. They're to elevate and you're to respect and hold them in high regard, but not at the place of what it describes here. Not puffed up in favor of one against another. We've talked about this in the past. What was happening there is they were picking favorites and kind of establishing camps. I follow Apollos. I follow Paul. I, I, I follow uh, Peter. 
But here he's charging them not to get puffed up in the favor of one or another. And why not? He says, because there's nothing different. Anything that anybody has is because they received it. That's an important thing for us to go back to because we're so quick to celebrate man is to come back to this idea. Anything that you have, you shouldn't be proud or boast about it because it's been given to you. Any talent, any ability, any resources, it's all a gift. Same with elevating other people. Anything they have is only because it's been given to them. He's trying to bring them back to reality. Verse eight, he continues, he says, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become, king, become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. Now, I had to read that a, a number of times to get a little bit of help just understanding what was happening. I'm like, man, it sure seems like he's being pretty sarcastic. And the more I dug into it, the more you realize, yeah, he's using that literary device you're familiar with, sarcasm. Now, he's not Chandler Bing from Friends trying to get a laugh, but he's trying to get an important point across. Basically, he says, without us, you have become kings. In other words, in our absence, you have developed an unholy contentment. You're living large. Basically, the potential for allowing physical comforts to give the illusion of having all that it's needed, numbed to the spiritual needs that they actually had. No longer putting off the old self, no longer pursuing purity, no longer trying to live set apart. Basically, they've given up on that idea. They've not hit a pinnacle, but a plateau where they've now built their tents. He says, would that you did reign. What does he mean by that? Would did that you reign? Basically, I wish your self-assessments were actually accurate. Basically, he wishes that they were further along than they actually were. You see, if the enemy catches us with our feet up where we're sinfully satisfied, we miss all that God has for us. It's kind of like it's settling for something way less than what is being offered. Think about a kid showing up to Disney for the very first time. As you get through the initial gates, what do you often see? You see the Disney characters kind of roaming around and dressed up in full gear. And imagine a, a kid showing up at Disney and being exposed to Mickey Mouse in full costume for the very first time and choosing to spend his entire day just at the entrance of the park. You would say, oh man, that's great that you started there. You had that little experience, but you missed all the rides. You missed all that Disney had to offer you. Basically, the same principle is true here. He's saying, man, don't settle. Don't plateau. Don't stop there at the entrance with a, a, a contentment, with a plateau of where God has called you to go. This is an effect of what happens when we're complacent. When we're complacent, you think about it, you become blind to existing sin in your life. There's no longer this striving or pursuit of purity. You get where you're just like, you know what? You're no longer enjoying a vibrant Christian life because there's no pursuit of calling. There's no intentional reaching out to the lost. There's no thinking through, how, how can I help meet this person's need? You're settling 
for much less than what God has designed for the Christian life. I like this quote by author Thomas Brooks. He says this, he says, it's a heavy plague to have a fat body and a lean soul, a house full of gold and a heart full of sin, never becoming the full expression of Jesus Christ that was intended for us to live out. Continue with this reprimand, if you will. Verse nine says, for I think that God has exhibited us apostles, apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death. Now you notice the contrast of the way they're living large, they're living the good life. He's saying, I think he wants us to exhibit as like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we are in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reveled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Wow. So what is he actually saying here? What is he trying to communicate to his audience? Basically, this is an important thing to understand. We're not called to seek suffering, but when we're actually following the ways of the Lord, we sure shouldn't be surprised by it. We should expect it. What Paul is doing is he's contrasting the life that they're familiar with, that's living as, uh, as kings, as he described. He's describing that life, and he's like, that doesn't mirror the Christian life that I'm experiencing. Look at some of the things that the descriptions, he says, last of all, a spectacle, fools of Christ, weak and disrepute, poorly dressed and buffeted and, uh, and homeless, laboring with hands, reveled, slandered, the scum of the world, and the refuse, which is basically a nicer name for poop. Here, this idea of being a, a spectacle, in that day, it was a military term when someone was brought back after a military win, they were brought back as a, a captives and they were brought directly to an arena as a spectacle for, su for the, the audiences to enjoy, quote unquote, as they were sentenced to death. Paul saw himself as a doomed gladiator in the ring. Basically, Paul's calling, the, what he is calling to them to was the opposite life of what they were experiencing. He said, man, what, what makes you think that our experience as the apostles shouldn't be mirrored by you? What makes you think you get to skip all of the heartache and pain, the hardship that's in store for someone that's fully devoted and committed to Jesus Christ? Verse 14 says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. As I teach them everywhere in every church, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. 
And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? All right, so what's he saying here? He first off explains to them, and I'm not trying to come to shame you, but instead I'm wanting to urge you to follow my example. He's saying he's not trying to destroy them, but to reclaim their lives. He's calling them to live differently. He just explained what his life was marked to. And he's like, man, follow my example. That's what he's charging them to. But he's not trying to rub their nose in something. That's important for us to understand when we're dealing with somebody that we genuinely care about. You're not trying to expose some of the patterns in their life so you can be like, ha ha, you need to stop that. But instead, as he describes here as beloved children, a beloved child, you're just like, man, I just care about you so much. I want to see the best for you. I often uh, have that translated with a passionate conversations to my kids. And my kids have, a, for both my wife and I, we revisit topics with them often. And they're like, all right, mom, all right, dad, we get it. You've talked about that before. And you're just like, but you don't understand. I, I care about you. That's why I keep bringing up these important topics for you to be on guard against. That's what we see here with Paul as seeing himself as a father. He's revisiting subjects he describes countless guides that they have around them. Basically, they have, he understands that he's not the only voice that they're hearing. The different voices that they have that come under the umbrella of spiritual input often can be a dangerous one if we're not careful to kind of weigh and consider what is the counsel that I'm receiving from this person? These different guides that he describes, it's an important question for each of us to ask, for you to ask, who's actually speaking into your life? Who's actually giving you input and wisdom? Where are you gleaming that from? Is it rooted in God's word? He's questioning the authenticity of the guides in which are giving them counsel. And he's explaining to them that he wants them to follow him. Follow, he said, I, I set you Timothy, who was really well-trained in following me. I want you to follow my lead, follow my example. And what is that example? Basically, that example is one of living separate from the world, one of that, that's uh, committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've noticed that you can live a pretty peaceful and quiet life when you don't bring up Jesus Christ. It's easy to get along with the world when you don't ever point to the idea of sin, when you don't ever point to the idea of rescue. You can stay under the radar, but he's saying, if you're going to live differently, if you're going to be faithful to this calling as a servant, of Jesus Christ, man, you can't remain silent. He charges them. He says, listen, I'm, I'm planning to come visit you. Why is that important that he's coming to visit them? I think the reason he brings that up is because a lot of times I, I wonder if they're like uh, parents uh, or like kids when the parents are away, they start kind of going and doing their own thing. He's like, listen, I'm coming back. I'm not the guy that you're never going to see again. There's not an absence of accountability in your life. He says, I'm planned to come back, Lord willing. He includes that. That's an important piece. And he explains, he asks them a question that seems uh, unique. He says at verse 21, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with, rod, with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? First, I was like, well, what is he trying to say by that? 
Basically, what he's saying is, what do you prefer? I can come in gentleness or with a rod. It's going to be determined by how you make these adjustments or don't make these adjustments in your life. So much easier if you just take the input that he's giving and don't have to come under the discipline of God. That's so true in our own lives. If we just actually receive input and make adjustments, he's like, man, that's the smoothest way to go. You know, I always feel like that with my kids. Man, if you just take input, make adjustments, man, it'll be nice and smooth sailing moving forward. So my question, just as we wrap up here, as we ask the the Holy Spirit to reveal things, my question is, have we moved towards complacency? Have you gotten to a a plateau where you're like, man, when I look at the last year, there's really been zero to uh, minimal movement spiritually in my life. If I actually look at some of the markers in my life for spiritual growth, you're like, there's not a whole lot happening. There's not a whole lot of vibrancy. There's not a whole lot of uh, commitment to God's word. There's not a whole lot of commitment to holiness. Seeking the spirit on that, asking him that question, God, what do you want to do with me from this passage of your word? What's my response? Have I become comfortably numb? He wants to see us shaken up and experience life to the fullest, a life of impact, a life of relationships, a life of of future glory. There's so many things he has in store for someone that's fully devoted. We recognize we can't do any of that without his strength. So that's why I want to close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this section of scripture and the charge that it gives us. I thank you for having somebody like Paul as an outside influence in our lives, somebody that will say it like it is, that'll even uh, push us and nudge us and make us uncomfortable because we need that, because we're so prone to follow the tide, to follow the direction the, as the, the temperature gets turned up in the culture around us for us to just adjust and adapt instead of being set apart and being different, God. We need your Spirit's help to run this race, to operate differently than the world around us, God. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your patience. In Jesus Christ's name I pray, amen.